Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you with knowledge to empower you so you can make better financial decisions in your life. I'm going to begin today's show with some info about the job market. How important is flexibility to you in the workplace? And here's something else. We have had a sordid history in America of age discrimination in employment. And depending on the employer, doesn't matter it's against the law, employers do everything they can to get rid of people in their mid to late 40s or in their 50s. Now that is actually shifting, not everywhere, but more and more places. If I'm talking to you or you know a family member who has been basically told, you're surplus because you're older, I have good news on that. And wow, one company has been in the news for coming up with a whole different way for office workers to deal with this flexible schedule thing that we have going on with the hybrid work stuff. Because what we've been doing just ain't working for most companies and most people. One other thing I want to talk about later, moving. I'm going to talk about how to figure out if you should move for financial reasons. So today's job market, I don't even know where to start because there's so much to talk about. Let's talk about people that are older. You know, employers are complaining so much in so many businesses, they can't find workers. Or they'll schedule interviews with people, and so many people don't show up for the interview and don't even call and with the courtesy to say, I'm sorry, I'm not coming. I'm going to do something else for work, or whatever it is. I mean, common courtesy, come on. If you schedule an interview with an employer, please have the good common sense and judgment, if you're not going to go, to call them and tell them you're not coming to the interview. I just can't imagine that. But anyway, the older workers that employers used to just dispense like a used Kleenex, now more and more employers are like, huh, why don't we hire some of these people? It's not everywhere, but it's definitely a trend because I'm seeing it a lot in the business and financial press about employers that are specifically targeting older workers to fill these jobs they've had trouble filling and saying, gosh, these people show up for work. They're on time. They work. Huh? Who knew? There was never a reason for the age discrimination from employers that I could see other than just being ageist. The fact that there's more opportunity is great. But the other thing is flexibility. And people repeatedly And surveys say they value a flexible workplace so much. How many hours do you have to work in a week? The hybrid thing, if you're working in an office environment, when do you have to be there? When do you not have to be there? In fact, I shared on the podcast last month that employers that are more flexible with worker schedules have actually had better success hiring workers than places where the employers are dictatorial about the work location, and work schedule. And that's a big duh, right? 
because people value having that flexibility so much. And so specifically to you, I'm speaking to you, if you are a worker who was downsized, likely because of your age, and you feel like there's no opportunity out there, I want to tell you the marketplace is changing and has changed at so many places. There very well may be opportunity for you out there. And a bank rate survey found that almost 90% of workers are even willing to give up something from their employer just to have more flexibility in their job when they do it, where they do it. And employers at the same time, in jobs where you don't have to be physically present, there are a lot of employers that are paranoid that workers aren't working if they're not there. If they can't see them with their own two eyes, or in my case, four eyes since I wear glasses, if they can't see them, they don't know that they're actually not loafing. And yeah, there are people going to loaf. And guess what? There are people who loaf in the office too. And you can tell over time who's producing as they should and who's not. You don't have to have eyeballs on them. But there is this corporate culture thing. There's a real advantage in having people together, especially for people that are young, out of high school, trade school, college, whatever. If they've never been in a corporate-type work environment, being there in a physical environment with other people is really valuable. Collaborative effort in so many jobs is so important, and it's so hard to get the corporate culture, to get the corporate norms, to get that collaboration when people are coming and going all different ways. Well, there was a story I read about J.M. Smucker. It was a Wall Street Journal story about how they came up with a whole different way to do hybrid work. People who work in a factory, they got to be present to win. I mean, you got to be there running the machinery. But people that are in office or sales or whatever jobs, not necessarily true. And so what they came up with, you know how so many employers require you be present in the office two or three out of five days? What they came up with is they came up with core weeks, which you have to be present in the office the whole week. And the plan they came up with is 22 weeks a year. The other 30 weeks of the year, you can work wherever. They don't care if it's Timbuktu, as long as you got an internet connection in Timbuktu. But wherever you are, you can work. It could be anywhere on the globe, anywhere around the United States. In their case, overwhelmingly, people work, live elsewhere in Ohio and just do long commutes the 22 weeks or come and stay in a hotel or something during those weeks and then live elsewhere the rest of the time. And so we're not there yet on how to make all this hybrid stuff work yet, but it requires continuous experimentation. And these bosses who say, you will do what we say or else. Yeah, they may be able to force you, but what's going to happen to their company over time if they don't honor and recognize what workers say overwhelmingly if they work in anything other than a place where being present is mandatory for what you do because you do your work on machinery or whatever, that employers who don't recognize what the workplace wants don't get the quality workplace of other places 
and will be less profitable over time. Promise. Krista? Okay, Peter in Maryland has a question. What is your opinion on non-qualified deferred compensation plans? I recently received a job offer from a company that listed this as one of their benefits. This plan offers the option to tax defer up to 80% of my salary and bonuses to be paid at a later date, either as a lump sum or distributed over several years. Since a good portion of my salary would likely fall into the 24% marginal tax bracket, this seems like a good way to reduce my current tax bill by deferring payments until after I retire. First of all, if you're in the 24% or below tax bracket, which is a really high income earner. I mean, it's amazing for a couple. It's, I think it's like 300 and something thousand a year, maybe. So the 24% bracket, uh, individual, half that, I guess. But that tax bracket is not an atrocious one to be paying tax. The advantage of a non-qualified compensation plan is the companies usually have these for their higher income earners or their corporate executives. That's who really benefits from them. So the terms of them tend to be very generous at what you earn tax deferred in that non-qualified compensation plan. They're often referred to as wheelbarrow funds because people that are high executives, high level people, they need a wheelbarrow to carry all their money out at the point they retire from the non-qualified plan. What happens at the end is then you're subject to tax, as you said, receiving the money all at once, typically under the law, or over five years. So you can do this. The risk is, so first the reward. You defer taxation. Hopefully you're in a lower than 24% tax bracket at the time you retire. You have tax-deferred growth on the money And if it is one of these insider plans, how they reward you every year on the money you have on deposit is incredibly generous in one of these typical plans. So that's all good. There's one bad that is required under the law. It's one of the post-Enron statutes. If the company at some point were to go insolvent, the reason it says non-qualified Non-qualified means that essentially that money is not protected money. If the company fails, all that money you deferred goes up in smoke. Poof, it's gone. So you got to really know enough about the financial strength of your employer before you go into one of these non-qualified plans. Thomas in California says, my wife and I picked up the Venture X card on the travel benefits and Clark's advice. Question, does Clark use the Capital One Venture X portal for all bookings, even if a third-party booker is cheaper? It sounds like the travel benefits offered by the card are only if booked through the portal. In addition, the Venture X portal doesn't have all the hotel choices. No low-rent hotels that I can find. Our trip from San Francisco to Cancun was $100 cheaper through a third-party booker. Thomas, this is a wonderful question, and it is uh, the one downside of the enormous upsides of the Capital One VentureX rewards card. This is a card that competes with the Chase Sapphire Reserve and with the American Express Platinum card that are for people who love travel and travel frequently. This one is... You get the card at a big 
discount to both the Chase and the Amex, the annual fee at this point is $395. They rebate 300 of that to you by you using the card for uh, travel through their portal. Now, their portal, you develop those points that you earn at twice the rate of Chase or American Express. You get two points for every dollar charged, 2% value back. But it's not really 2% if the hotel or air flight or whatever you're booking is more expensive through Capital One than it would be elsewhere. I've found opportunities where I make the stop through the travel portal on Capital One if the rate is the same as it would be at the cheapest place I can find somewhere else, I book through the Capital One travel portal and use my points for hotel or air travel. Uh, I find repeatedly with air travel, the price is the same and use the points there. For hotels, I find over and over again that Capital One's hotel prices are not price competitive in the marketplace. And I got lucky occasionally it will be. But for the air travel, you will find frequent times that you'll be able to redeem your air there through their travel portal, use your points, and pay the equivalent of nothing for your airfare. Lori in Arizona says, I love my Tesla too. How does the Costco Visa 4% reward for EV charging work? What is eligible and why don't I get the credit for charging at Tesla superchargers? So Costco does now give credit at the EV charging stations that you can charge your costs through the Costco Visa card. And most you're able to. I don't know about the Tesla chargers. I did look on Reddit and places people were saying that they did receive the credit for their Tesla. So I would call them and make sure that. Oh, and how are you ever going to talk to a human at Tesla? Or you mean call the call call Citibank? Call Citibank. It's four percent on the um, on gas and EV charging up to seven thousand dollars a year. Yeah, Costco membership has a much higher take up of electric vehicles in the country generally. So Costco was pretty upfront early with this, where the four percent you could earn for gasoline purchases also applied to charging at electric vehicle charging stations, and good for them. So this is a real opportunity, and Bank of America has a deal. What do you get with the Bank of America? Five and a quarter Uh, percent? It says... Three percent to five and a quarter percent on EV charging is a new benefit with certain Bank of America credit cards. So the electric vehicle thing, we reached the tipping point with electric vehicles in the United States last year, where 5% or more vehicles being sold were electric. Now, I think we're 7.5%. And so economists know that with different things in the economy, you reach tipping points. So you're going to see more and more benefits available to electric vehicle owners that historically were only for gas engine. This is just another example. Coming ahead How do you decide whether you should move for financial reasons? It's a tough dilemma for people. We're going to talk about that. So we are a financial podcast, a thing for your wallet, you know, personal finance, how you spend every dollar. 
And so a lot of the questions I'm asked are dollars and cents questions. But I'm going to take a step back from that on this thing that's been so much in the news. I, I am amazed how much this is part of personal finance writing these days is people who are stressed and stretched because of housing costs. So there's article after article about, you know, your money here will go this much further there, or your money here will not go nearly as far there, or that kind of thing. And uh, a while back, I talked about a profile about a family that moved from a low-cost city, Cleveland, to high-cost New York, and what things they went through from having a really nice financial cushion in their lives, affordable housing costs, to being broke all the time because of New York housing costs. And so a lot of people hit that wall where they're like, I just can't take this anymore. I mean, the cost of living is just eating me up. And they move somewhere else. And for many people, their lives will be much improved when they move. But I saw in a Kiplinger item that a recent survey found that three quarters of people who moved for financial reasons as their primary reason to move ended up regretting it. They missed the lifestyle where they came from. They missed family. They missed friends. They missed different aspects. Could be the weather. And so even though you hear me so linearly talk about this dollar and that dollar and the most efficient way to do this, that, and the other, and blah, 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 at the end of the day, happiness is not about chasing a dollar. I I think of an alternative analogy that people who get a job because it pays well, but they hate it, are miserable even though there's more money with that job. And that temporary feeling you get the second you see your pay post to your account is so fleeting. And what really matters is that you enjoy what you do. You look forward to it. You don't dread it. Well, think of that the same way with relocating. And that's why I urge you when you're relocating for various reasons, but especially when it's financial and it's a financial exhaustion where you live, that you test drive as much as you can by pooling your vacation time together and going and spending, if you can, multiple weeks, if you can, a month at the place you're thinking of moving, the area you're thinking of moving, and see is this something you really could enjoy, could live with. I have a relative who was living in a very low-cost area and seemingly had, from outward appearances, a wonderful life there. But he was considering taking an opportunity to move to a big, high-cost town. And I said, how could you do this? I mean, you're saving so much money every month and you have like no commute and blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, if you love it so much, why don't you move here? And I'm like, I don't want to live there. (laughs) And I never said another word about it. And he moved and he was so much happier when he moved. And yeah, he didn't have as much money, disposable income after that, didn't have as much money in savings. But the idea is living your life where you enjoy 
is a big part of the puzzle. Having said that, there are people that there are many things. Could be they hate the long commute living in the big high-cost area they're in. They may not be happy with the schools for their kids. I mean, it could be so many different things. When it's multiple factors and you find another place that connects the dots really well, those are the people who are likeliest to be the happiest with a move. But if it's just, well, it's cheaper there, I'm going to go there, that usually doesn't work out. All right, we'll go to questions. This is from Larry in Maryland. I know you advise listeners that target index funds are great for long-term investing. In researching these, it seems each has a significant investment in foreign stocks that have underperformed U.S. stocks for long periods of time. Are you concerned about this? Well, I don't like it because I have, um, I have, uh, gosh, I think right around 40%. It's less now because the foreign funds have not performed as well as domestic. So maybe I'm a third foreign in my equity holdings. If you know price earnings ratios, the markup essentially you pay to own U.S. funds is much higher than it is for foreign. And a lot of foreign economies are growing significantly faster than we are. So I believe that as an American, obviously I invest in my home country, But for long-term financial security, long-term growth of assets, and diversification of risk, I do invest significantly overseas, which right now, if you look back over the last decade, has been a fool's errand and has not earned me the return that domestic would earn. But I'm playing a long game. So being diversified widely, the more widely you're diversified, the lower the long-term risk profile of your investment portfolio. And it gives you the ability to have more of your investments in stock type choices than you could have otherwise. So am I happy about it? No. Have I changed it? No. Which means I'm either stubborn or I'm right on that. Michael in Florida says, your show is about saving, and now I want to ask about spending. I've been saving for 40 years. I'm 64, no children. I have a state pension, a 401k, a part-time job, and social security. The only bill I have is a $150,000 mortgage. My question is this, I don't want to leave this all behind when I'm gone for somebody else to enjoy. When is a good time to start drawing on the 401k and Social Security and enjoy all my hard work throughout my years of saving? So, Michael, this is a dilemma that lifelong savers face. And it's a good problem to have where you've got this money and you're like, am I safe to start spending it? Which is much better than being one of the people who hits retirement age And you're like, there's no there there. I got no savings. The vast majority. Yeah, it's unfortunately a very large pool. So you're in the really good swimming pool, Michael. You're in the one you want to be in. And this is the number one time people go see a fiduciary fee-only planner is when they're at that point, they've accumulated all these assets, they've got all these streams of income, and now it's like, okay, can I open the spigot a little? Can I go do this and that or uh, go see this or, or buy that or whatever it is? And so you go see uh, someone who you pay, you write them a check 
an hourly rate, like seeing a lawyer or an accountant, and you get fiduciary advice, which means they are legally bound to give you guidance that's best for your situation. And so I would strongly recommend that you look at our guide to finding a true fee-only fiduciary planner or go check out Garrett Planning Network as a resource. And you go sit down with someone. You can do it virtually. I like a sit down, particularly with a question like yours. And Michael lives in Florida. Yes. A lot of two things in Florida. You got a lot of good fiduciary fee-only planners, and then you got a lot of snakes in the grass. And I'm not talking about the, the snake version. I'm talking about the human version of a snake that are commissioned salespeople who are going to tell you bad stuff to do with your money. I don't want you with one of those. I want you with a fiduciary fee-only planner. Who doesn't also sell life yeah. insurance. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was funny. I just read a story recently that there are people who sell insurance with a straight face or lying to people and telling them they're a fiduciary. Okay, Somebody starts peddling insurance, you know they are not a fiduciary. Because this is this two hats thing that's been coming up a lot right. lately. And now the right. government's finally, they're cracking down on these people. Yeah, they not are, very much. They're wearing a fiduciary hat and then through a separate entity, they're selling life insurance. Yeah, so you want somebody who's not trying to sell you anything at any time other than the cumulative wisdom, education, and training that they have had over the years. This is from Andrea in Connecticut. I'm a single female looking to sell a used vehicle through a private sale, which makes me uncomfortable. I know to meet in a public place, but how do I handle the money transaction to ensure I won't get ripped off? This is a great question and a big problem. So Andrea, before you sell private sale, go on Carvana.com and CarMax.com and see what each will offer you for your vehicle. If either offers you enough, I'd say you're done. It's the safest way you can sell a vehicle. You don't have to worry about somebody sticking a gun in your uh, midsection or anything like that. It's clean. It's real. So what I recommend, though, if you do decide to sell to an individual, is you meet them at their bank. During banking hours, obviously, and you do a bill of sale that both of you sign in front of the bank officer sitting at one of those overpriced fancy desks they have at bank branches. You're given an actual real bank check by that bank officer. You sign the title over and all that is done where you're doing it with that individual. You're getting safe, real money from the bank. Transactions clean and it's done. But again, please see what you are offered by both Carvana and CarMax, because then you'll know marker price. If you do want to try to sell on your own, what's the marketplace saying? And you can probably price like 10% above selling on your own, either of those two. But you may also find that it's not worth it, and you end up selling your vehicle to one of them. I've sold vehicles to both CarMax and Carvana over the years and have found it a very streamlined, easy process to do. The pricing I've been offered has been good. If they offer a crummy price, 
I don't sell it to either of them. And that does it for us today here on the podcast. Know that we have advice for you seven days a week, around the clock, with our newsletters at Clark.com, ClarkDeals.com, and know our newsletters are the right price. They are free and priceless at the same time. Go to Clark.com slash newsletter.